This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I'm Fallon and I'm here with Mims. How are you? I am doing so good. It's really nice to see you. I feel like it's been forever. Um, So I'm happy to be doing this with you. It does seem like it's been forever. Yeah. Do you have a new painting behind you? Yeah. How do you feel? I love it. (laughs) It's a girl putting on her lipstick and the reflection of a knife. And I feel like that totally speaks to me. So I feel it. Yeah. I like the Coke cans in her hair too. Yeah, right. Super ghetto, but you know, ghetto fabulous like me. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, okay. So I have some news, but do you want to go first with anything that you have? Um, You can go first. Okay. So Fallon and I would like to announce that All the Sins will be ending by the end of this month. The last episode will be aired on May 31st. This has been or has not been an easy decision to make. However, we both take our work-life balance very seriously and have decided that this is the best thing for the both of us. Uh, We have had a lot of fun doing this but this is just our new path yeah it's been a lot of fun I've enjoyed it but like you said work-life balance is important got a lot of big things coming up so and I wouldn't want to give anybody's cases like half my attention right right so we are ending it but I'm going to shamelessly plug two of my new projects Uh, I'm excited to announce that our sinners won't be left hanging. I am launching a sister podcast with a new host. Uh, Her name is Jess, and it's going to be called All the Sins Worldwide. So this podcast will be still dedicated to Wisconsin cases. However, we're going to broaden our horizons and cover cases from all corners of the world. I feel like having that capacity to talk about any case while still being true to where we started from is going to be really important and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Nobody can replace Fallon, but this is going to be its own thing. And I hope that our listeners hop onto the new uh, podcast that I'm starting. And I'm also launching another podcast as if I don't have enough going on. That will be available June 12th. If you're interested in passive income, entrepreneurship, and small, I'm sorry, small business mindsets, 
I will be on the air and on YouTube with an amazing co-host, Lexi Starr. Uh, we will be interviewing local business owners, talking about our personal journeys, and just a lot, a lot more. Um, That'll be awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited about both. It just kind of one day I just sat down. And I'm like, well, I still really love podcasting, so I just. I, it literally was like a day turnover and I had both of these projects already churning. So um, I'm excited. That's awesome. I'm excited for you. Thank you. Anything from you, Miss Fallon? Well, no, I don't think so. Not right now. We can get started. Okay. Sounds good. So I'm going to start us off with the case of Muvano Capaza. So I don't know if you're familiar, Fallon, um, but to those that have watched The Office and know every episode by heart, will know what I'm talking about when I say this episode reminded me of that one line that Nellie, who was the redheaded English woman, when she said, my mother told me I'd get murdered if I came to America. Have you ever watched The the Office? Um, not, I don't think I've ever watched the whole episode. Okay. <laughs> it's not <laughs> for everybody, that's for sure. No. <laughs> so this is the story of the body found at Peck's Landing in the Wisconsin River in 1999. My sources are from Criminally Intrigued Fandom, the show Secrets of the Morgue, and the Chippewa Herald. On July 30th, 1999, at Peck's Landing in Sauk County, a naked woman was found in the Wisconsin River in a black duffel bag. And if that wasn't bad enough, it wasn't just a naked body, it was a dismembered body with no head, legs, or arms. Oh, wow. Authorities were called immediately and the search for the rest of the body was on. They were, they've never seen something like this before. They combed through the river high and low as it was vital for the body composition in order to determine the identification of this person. Day after day, authorities searched and finally additional bags were found. One woodman's bag was found with a head and flesh inside. Um, I'm going to just warn everybody. I feel like I should have done this before, but, you know, this one's a little bit intense. Uh, another woodman's bag was found with arms inside. But the problem was that the head found had identifying markers removed, like the nose and ears. So basically the head was more or less skinned off. However, the silver lining was that the killer left the hands on the arms, which would provide fingerprints. And I was kind of confused on that because if you took the time to really decimate this person's body, remove all facial features, why would you leave the hands? Yeah, that's really weird. That silver lining came with difficulties. The body parts were in the body, or I'm sorry, in the water for a long period of time. So the skin was slewing off, which was problematic for fingerprints. Once the medical, I know, I'm so sorry. 
just just bear with me. <laughs> it's a really good story. Okay. Once the medical examiner had the arms, they had to make a human glove out of the skin to put it over their gloved hands in order to get fingerprints. So they're really just trying their hardest to figure out who the victim is. I didn't know people that they did that in real life. I thought that was just on CSI. It's a real thing and it's happening here in good old Wisconsin. It's crazy. Yeah. An autopsy was formed. Uh, was performed, I'm sorry, and a case of death could not be determined due to the state of the remains. That was a tedious and lengthy process, and unfortunately, the prints were not in the system, leaving investigators at another dead end. The investigators were not giving up, though. This murder was gruesome and heinous, and they were going to find answers. They were very determined. The investigators decided to go in a different direction. They were going to look at her biological profile and sought out the help from a forensic anthropologist. But that was going to be an uphill battle with a little to go off of based off what they found and the condition that it was found in. Mm -hmm. They needed to determine bone structures, size as far as height and weight and composition in order to determine ancestry. The arms had dark skin, but the hands were fair, which is normal when it comes to skin being in the water for a significant amount of time. And here is what they came up with. She was from African-American descent. She was around 5'2", stout in body structure, and around the age of 25 years old. And if you ask me, I feel like that's pretty, that's narrowed it down um, with all the things that they had working against them. I feel like they were really honing in on who this victim was. Investigators cross-referenced the missing persons database that, however, did not prove helpful as there were thousands of similar missing persons in that description and sometimes some missing people aren't reported. So it just didn't help And in this point of the investigation. This case was hard. There was no suspects, no victim identification, and no leads. The dedication to solving this case was amazing. They tried to do a facial recognition, which they would have to, I'm going to warn you, this is pretty gross. They had to boil the flesh off of the skull to do so. They rethought that process since they didn't have a lot of the victim's remains to work with. So they wanted to preserve anything they had as much as they could. So they went to Lexington, Kentucky with the skull to a specialist that would be able to re-engineer the skull with paper. The facial, I know they're going hard. They're not giving up. The facial engineer created a masterpiece as the reconstruction was so lifelike. Now that they had a face to their Jane Doe that made up missing, they made up missing persons posters with the reconstruction. And they really went hard with this because they put long haired wigs, short hair wigs, a turban, 
glasses, no glasses, so that anyone and everyone would have the, you know, be able to recognize who this Jane Doe is. Investigators put the posters up all over town and mostly targeted the Woodman's grocery store as that is where the bod or where the bags were found um, with right. the body parts in it. So they knew there was a link there. Mm -hmm. Investigators opened a tip line for callers. And of course, a lot of people flooded the line. Some useless information, some actual people with missing person in their circle and one actual lead. A local woman claimed the posters resembled her ex-husband's cousin, Muvano Kupaza, a 25-year-old student from Tanzania. Once they had the name, authorities were able to track down fingerprints from a local abortion clinic belonging to Muvano and compare them to the body. Finally, a match was found, and the identity to this Wisconsin Jane Doe was finally made, and after all that time and energy and work, they had some answers. Muvano Kupaza was finally identified. But and how long was this process? This took maybe, like, two years. Okay. But it doesn't end there. And in fact, this is where the investigation kind of gets a little bit harder because we're going to have to figure out who did this, why. And, you know, since she was from a different country, we're going to have to notify the family if they already didn't know. The woman who called in told investigators that her husband, Peter, and her met and got married and they had, and he was a perfectly normal guy. Then he asked her if his cousin Muvano could come live with them while she visited. She agreed and Muvano moved into their home, but she noticed that something was wrong. The ex-wife went to explain that her and Peter's marriage ended as she suspected him of sexually assaulting his own cousin. He had raped her and forced her to have the abortion, which is when she left the set of finger, uh, the set of documented fingerprints on an official file. Oh, wow. the, it's awful. The investigators felt that Peter would have more answers as he was her only link here in Wisconsin. Like, you have to know what happened to her. Mm -hmm. They decided to pay a visit to the 40-year-old and get his side of the of the story on January 1st, 31st, 2000. Oh, so that was only a year then. Yeah, that, that's really quick. Yeah, they were not playing. Peter was insistent that his cousin had left town and went back to Tanzania on April 25th, 1999 and that he even dropped her off and witnessed her leave. He mentioned he received a phone call from family confirming her arrival from the rest of the family members. But they knew this wasn't true. Authorities called Muvano's family in Tanzania, just to cross-reference what Peter said, mm -hmm. and they were adamant that they had not heard you know, anything from Muvano uh, since June of 1998. Wow. So a whole year. 
The family had not reported her missing due to reassurance from Peter, believing she was in good hands, and they were shocked to know that wasn't the case. Peter would double down on his claims. He stated that his cousin left on a bus bound for Iowa on April 25th and then flew to Tanzania, and then he had given her $100 for the trip. And I don't understand why she would detour to Iowa since there is a Milwaukee airport. You know, right. like, would you go on a bus to go to a different airport in a different Or Chicago? Like, right. why would you pass Chicago? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. And I feel like with people that believe their own stories, they expect other people to believe them without question. Definitely. A claim that was called into question after inspecting Peter's financial records. He had very little money and was behind on nearly all of his bills. So for him to just give her $100 just seemed untrue. Right. It would have been very difficult to save up that kind of money as he claimed. This just shows the level of narcissism he had. He kept telling these lies and and he expected the investigators to fully believe it and just move on After Peter was officially questioned, he would eventually be taken into custody and a thorough search was performed in his tiny apartment. They found numerous sharp knives, a blood stain beneath the baseboards in the bathroom. And when I say a tiny, I mean a speck. Like they really combed the place down. They lifted everything. And when they lifted the baseboard, it was behind the baseboard and it was teeny tiny i'm just so happy that they were so thorough so they also found a number of woodman's grocery bags so he definitely shopped at woodman's Mm -hmm. a number of personal items belonging to muvano were also present some jewelry purses and her bible and a fellow classmate at the english learning class she was attending Uh, told investigators that she was never without that Bible. She was always carrying it with a bright smile. So for her to have left that behind, no, no, ma'am. Right. All of this could be explained away, though. So they really needed something to seal, you know, this entire investigation and bring it to a close. Because that's all circumstantial. That can all be... Well, you know, she didn't want the Bible. She left me these things or I, everybody has sharp knives. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. The biggest piece of evidence found was a letter postmarked for June 24th, 1999. On the envelope was Muvano's fingerprint. This completely unraveled Peter's story, claiming that his cousin had left in April and had no contact with her since then. There was also a daily planner that Peter kept regularly. Around the time of Muvano's murder, cryptic entries were entered in Tanzanian languages. The loose translations were in regards to falling into something and getting a job done. Just very ominous notes overall. That's so weird to write it down. I I just don't get why people record leave any sort of evidence behind but I mean I'm happy that they do because then their asses get caught right 
These could mean any number of things, but given their proximity to the murder, it's easy to assume that they were in regards to his cousin and what had happened to her. With all evidence taken into account, Peter was charged with the murder and mutilation of his own cousin, and his bail was set at $500,000. He was then taken to trial. Additional evidence came out during the trial as well. The ex-wife testified to the relationship Peter kept with the cousin, uh, Muvano, which would lead to their divorce. She also testified that the black duffel bag was his, uh, and it was a gift that she had given him a few years prior. So everything was looking up. Peter found, Peter himself would also testify in a last-ditch effort to save himself, which, in my opinion, is never a good look for a defendant to do, but it's his right. He again asserted that Muvano had gone to Iowa via ground a greyhound with another man, now another man's involved, from Tanzania. Mm. The other man part was something new that he just threw in there. He never once mentioned that before when he was being interviewed. Peter had lied throughout the case and it was all very apparent. Nothing was lining up and he just kept making the story, uh, shifting it every time that he was, you know, told that, well, that doesn't make sense because of this. And then he would switch it up, just making it even the more that he tried to make it not look like he did it, the more he made it look like he did it. Right. Okay. Um, And having someone lie may be more compelling than an actual confession, as there are gaps in in their story and reality. Investigators Mm -hmm. found out that Peter had a familiarity with the river where Muvano's remains were discovered. They could also assert that the reason she was so severely disfigured and mangled was in part due to Mm -hmm. Peter's ties with her. They explained in the trial that if no one could identify her, then authorities would be unable to identify him as a killer, which almost proved to be correct. Yeah. There were also claims that Peter had been familiar with butchering animals back in Tanzania, as he often would butcher goats for food, so he had that under his belt. And let's not forget Peter's planner that had all those ominous notes written in it. You just can't overlook that. Right. It is thought that being financially responsible for two of them was too much to handle uh, him and the potential baby that she was carrying. Another theory came out as well that Muvano declined Peter's advances, advances one day and that he killed her due to her finally standing up for herself. Finally, one of the biggest pieces of evidence was the testimony of Muvano's father, which was awful to think about. Their daughter went to America to visit family and have new experiences, and now her family was at her murder trial, and who was the culprit? Her her own cousin who raped her repeatedly. That's so horrible. Her father testified that he had no contact with her since she had arrived to the United States and had no knowledge of his daughter returning to Tanzania. His story never 
changed. It was always the same. And that's what he testified to. And this all mounted against Peter and the jury found him guilty. He would be sentenced to life imprisonment for the brutal murder of innocent and lovely Mubano Kupaza. And an odd twist of fate, Peter was almost eligible for a release due to one of the star witnesses. Sandra Anderson trained and handled cadaver dog cadaver sniffing dogs and was charged with tampering evidence in a number of cases. Peter saw his moment of opportunity, so he filed for an appeal, but ultimately was unsuccessful. Despite the poor witness testimony of the dog handler, there was still overwhelming evidence that Peter was the murderer and attempted to cover his tracks. Peter Capazzo is held at the Dodge Correctional Institution in Waupon, where he will remain serving his sentence. And my heart really goes out to the Capazzo family. They lost a beautiful shining light of a person who wore a smile even when life wasn't kind to her. And on top of that, this family had to come to terms with the fact that it was caused by a person within their own family. Yeah, that's and horrible. It, it really is. There's just no, nothing good about this. No. And that is a tragic story of Muvano Capazzo. Great job. I hadn't heard about that. Thank you. Yeah, I watched the the episode and I was like, First of all, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Second, I've never heard of it. Right, me either. Isn't that crazy how many cases there are that we never heard of? It is super crazy. And like, it's not like this is a mild story by any means. Right. So the fact right. that this type of story is not or was not as publicized is just crazy to me. But yeah, me too. Well, all right. We love you guys. We love you. Bye. Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.